I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Today we're excited to share this bonus episode. It's a recording from our launch event, kindly hosted by our friends at Georgetown Law, with special guests Roger McNamee and Congresswoman Clark. Congresswoman Clark is the representative of New York and is a committed champion to fighting bias in AI and other forms of discrimination in tech. Roger is a longtime investor in tech and a founding partner in venture capital firm Elevation Partners with Bono. He was previously a close advisor to Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and most recently wrote the book Zucked. Roger is now on a mission to shed light on the dangers of tech that is unfettered and insufficiently regulated. When Roger talks, it's no holds barred, and our conversation today with him is no different. Enjoy. So uh, we will shortly be hearing from Representative Clark, who many of you know is, and as the Dean said, is one of the leading advocates for AI and responsible ethical AI in Congress. Uh, She uh, was called into a caucus meeting uh, and had a vote delay. So we will see her shortly. In the meantime, we're so excited to get the conversation started with our guest, Roger McNamee. As many of you know, he's a leading Silicon Valley investor and venture capitalist. He has spent his career focusing on the financing, the development of technology and media companies. He started his career just a few years ago uh, with a science and technology fund at T. Rowe Price, and then went on to launch several other uh, VCs, Integral Capital Partners, Silver Lake Partners, and most recently, Elevation Partners, with another low-profile partner, Bono. He served as the technical advisor on HBO Silicon Valley, as well as helped raise money for Wikipedia Foundation, In his free time, he's clearly a philanthropist, but also spends a great deal of time as a musician. You may have heard of his band Moonlace, Moon Alice, my apologies, and the Doobie Decimal System. They do hundreds of shows a year. You also may have heard of his book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, which we look forward to talking about today. Uh, It's part of what's clearly been a campaign of activism that Roger's been on for the past few years, and he's been part of the promotion of a national conversation on the potential harms of social media. He's been raising awareness and sharing these concerns about the lack of regulation and enforcement against big tech companies, issues that we look forward to talking with him about today. Roger, you've had a fascinating journey. You have unique insight into the inner workings of the tech world. You can give us a glimpse under the hood into both the good and the bad, and we're so thrilled you can join us here today. Thank you. Miriam, it's my pleasure. And if I may just take one moment to thank the Dean for his introduction, but to clarify one thing. While I did my best to provide insight to the Biden transition, I do not think I would in any way qualify as a senior advisor. But nonetheless, I appreciate the promotion. Well, as an effective lawyer himself, I'm sure he would appreciate your being clear on the nuances and details. So thank you. Point taken. So, you know, what would you like to get started here? Absolutely. Why don't I start us off with uh, looking at the fact that you have been a tech evangelist uh, for its good and for its harm. Um, maybe let's take a moment before we get into the dangers that you're now very well known for talking about. If you could take a step back in time with us to when you first started out, when did you become such an advocate for tech and its power? 
And so it, we're good. <laughs> in, in, in 1978, when I was returning to college after a fairly long break, my brother gave me a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell, which was a consumer product for kids that had a little two-line display. It had a speaker so it could say words out loud and a keyboard where kids would type in so they could learn how to spell. And my brother handed this thing to me in December of 1978 and said, you know, this thing runs on batteries. If you can do all this today, in a few years, you're going to be able to make a device that you can hold in your hand that holds all of your personal information. Now, he was describing the Palm Pilot, which did not ship for another 18 years. But when I went back to college, I had in my heart goal of creating what would become the Palm Pilot. Turned out I was a terrible engineer, but I absolutely had the bug. And that's where it began. And the thing is, in those days, the culture of Silicon Valley and of the tech industry was really an amalgam of the values of the Apollo space program and the hippie movement as espoused by Atari and Apple. And it was a really idealistic place. And it was really dedicated to the empowerment of the people who use technology. And so I was drawn to that idealistic vision, as I think so many people were of my generation. And it was not until roughly a decade ago that it became clear to me that the culture of Silicon Valley had changed in ways that required us to ask fundamental questions. And that's really what we're here to do today. Thanks, Roger. Uh, we've come a long way since Speak and Spell, uh, certainly here in 2021. And, um, you know, a lot of your work now is, is, is focused on uh, what, what we have built and, um, and, and, and what role it's playing in the world. Um, you know, just diving right in, you have, you have spent a lot of your time recently, um, uh, you know, crusading and, 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 and making the case um, against unregulated, unfettered use of the powerful technologies that we now have. Can you tell us a little bit about what motivates you in this in this journey that you're on, and um, yeah. and and how it's how it's evolved from those those earlier days? Thank you, Mark. It's such an important point that there's nothing inevitable about technology or even the situation we have today. The if you think about the technology that we have, if you think about an iPhone, you know, the iPhone has enabled the massive expansion of centralized systems like Facebook, like Twitter, like YouTube. But it could just as easily enable a system where everything was highly distributed, where data never left the phone. And the thing that I've been arguing about is that, you know, we are in a bad place today where essentially the culture of business in America, which has been evolving for 40 years with this notion of allowing markets to allocate capital in all circumstances and eliminating friction on business. So you get rid of regulations, you get rid of enforcement, and you allow businesses to make choices entirely in the interest of shareholders without regard to the impact on employees, the communities where employees live, customers or suppliers or any other constituency. And so the result of this incentive structure, not just in tech, Right. But actually, everywhere in the economy is that we've seen this huge growth of wealth for the few undermining the broad population. The problem in tech is that tech now controls the national conversation. And in that context, it has undermined the pandemic response of the country so that we've, you know, led the world in, in fatalities 
We've also led the world in, if you will, the spread of disinformation about pandemic. On top of that, it enabled stop the steal and the insurrection. And so when I look at things like that, which are a direct threat to democracy, my basic point is that we're running out of time to make a choice about whether we're going to allow technology platforms to dominate our, effectively, our political system and to make the choices about whose speech counts and whose speech does not, to make the choices about what is acceptable in society and what is not. Are these things that we as a population would like to have a role in? Or are we willing to delegate this to a very small number of exceptionally wealthy people who happen to live in a relatively small geographical area and have certain demographic characteristics in common that make them quite different from the average American? And so I look at this as a thought experiment. I would ask everyone on this call not to listen to me as somebody whose point of view you're supposed to accept, but rather as someone who's trying to trigger a conversation, a thought experiment, if you will, about imagining a different world. Because the one thing I can tell you with great certainty is there is literally nothing about this technology, whether it's AI or anything else we're working on, that cannot be done for good. But in the current culture, without any guardrails, it is so much easier to profit from bad that that is what will inevitably happen. And you can see this in AI everywhere, where, you know, whether it's predictive policing or digital redlining for mortgages or, uh, you know, the applications that review uh, resumes that reject women or people of color, that it's, it's just too easy to profit from doing bad. And we've gone through this before. I mean, we went through it with the building trades, which had building practices in the 19th century that led to massive fires. We went through it with the pharmaceutical industry. We went, you know, when there were all these poisons that were sold as drugs. We went through it with the food industry when, you know, before the Pure Food and Drug Act. We went through it in the garment industry, which felt it was essential to employ children. We went through it with the chemicals industry. We have a lot of experience making dangerous industries safe. We just need to accept that this is a dangerous industry and it's our job to make it safe. Roger, what strikes me is that you have a full life. You have a music career that's going very well. You are comfortable. You have a lot of work that you're passionate about. And yet you've spent the last few years committing significant resources and time to this cause, to making sure that people understand what's happening in technology, the dark side of how this plays out. Where do you see us going? What are you, what's your true fear? Just to underscore what the, your motivation is and what you're fearing is the ultimate outcome. What keeps you motivated to do this work day in, day out, to write a book that I highly recommend to everyone? It's a great read and eye-opening, and it's a wonderful way to watch your journey into this wake-up uh, moment of, of what could go wrong. Where do you ultimately see this going as a worst-case scenario on our current trajectory? So, so, Miriam, let me break that into two parts, if I may. The, the first one is, is, is the why. So I was an undergraduate history major. I spent a lot of time studying the first half of the 20th century. I watched, you know, as a student, 
you know, I learned about the rise of fascism. And I learned about how authoritarianism came to dominate many parts of the world and how hard it was to fix that. I learned a lot about also the consequences of bad government economic policy. And if you think about the investment business, particularly the part of it that I spent many years in the public market, that's really a place where you're in a, a person who is essentially a, a professional consumer of news and a professional student of history. You're doing real-time anthropology, applying the lessons of the past to the present. And when I saw things coming off the rails, I went to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg in October of 2016, about 10 days before the presidential election, to warn them that I had started to notice over the course of 2016 that the business model, algorithms, and culture of Facebook were being used by bad actors to harm innocent people, both in the area of civil rights. I'd seen a bunch of things related to Black Lives Matter and to housing, but also democracy. And there I was mostly focused on what happened in Brexit. And I went to two people who had at one time I had mentored and said, guys, there's something really wrong here. I went there as their friend. I spent three months trying to persuade Facebook to do the right thing. And in my idea, the right thing was to to recognize that there was some structural flaw here and that they could have a great business if they fixed the flaw. But if they didn't fix the flaw, they would lose trust and destroy the whole thing. It never occurred to me then that they would not respond in the way I would have anticipated, which is to say, wow, we've won. Let's fix this thing and you know, be heroes in our own story. And when that didn't happen, I was faced with this choice. I could either say, look, I'm retired. I don't need to do this, which is the point you were making. Just play music. Or I could accept that I had an opportunity and maybe even a responsibility to try to do something about it. And then after that, it's been one thing leading to another. I mean, seriously, I mean, I never had a plan for activism. I honestly didn't know what I was doing. And it was totally trial by error. And I met all these amazing people. And for those who are watching, one of the most compelling things about activism in the tech reform movement is that 80% of the key players are women and probably a quarter of them are black. And they have been on the pointy end of the spear their whole lives and have taken up the mantle to do something about it. And I kind of feel like I have an opportunity to be part of that and support that. And I grew up in a family where my parents were involved in the civil rights movement in the sixties. And so I was raised by studying that movement up close. And my mentor, um, Clarence Jones, was Martin Luther King's attorney. And so he has, over the years, taught me to be a better activist. And I think this is a battle on that scale. You know, it's obviously different in many ways, but the number of people affected, it's essentially, you know, like 98% of the population is on the wrong end of the situation where there's an imbalance between benefit and cost. And so where do I think we're going to go? I don't think we have much time. You know, in 1861, General Winfield Scott, the longest serving general in the Union Army, when asked about the potential threat to Lincoln's approval by the Electoral College in his inauguration, suggested that anyone who protested, whether they be a senator or magistrate, be strapped to the muzzle of a 12-pounder cannon and fired out of a window of the Capitol. He said, you know, 
It was his duty to suppress insurrection. We seem to have forgotten that. And, you know, I think that the law in particular needs to examine its role in society. Because I think in America, the law has become a tool of the powerful. And I think we've lost sight of the values that historically underlay our, you know, our constitution, underlie our constitution, underlie just the whole reason that we exist. And, um, you know, when I look at this, I think the House of Representatives uh, has made tremendous strides. I think state attorneys general are making very good strides. I think the Senate's got to figure it out. I think the Biden administration is making some good appointments. They've got a lot more they've got to make. Um, but I think it's incumbent on all of us. I think we need a sense of urgency because there's a full page ad today in the New York Times from Facebook pretending like they're going to be a leader on tech reform, which is pure and simple gaslighting. And, you know, we have to call a spade a spade. And we have to recognize that this is our country and we have to make choices. And we have, you know, we can do that. I mean, a world without those guys wouldn't be a bad world. And a world with those guys under control would be a much better world. Well, Roger, on that note, I'm uh, so excited to dig into so many points you raised, uh, but we're going to take a brief moment to hear from one of the congresswomen I knew you were referencing when you said that Congress is doing oh, yeah. much better in this department. Congresswoman Yvette Clark, we're so pleased you could- One of my heroes. Yes, one of our heroes, all of us, I think, can I can speak on behalf of, um, because you've been a hero in using the power of the U.S. Congress to address civil rights in the realm of AI, to make sure that those who are on the other end of the spear that Roger's talking about are protected, uh, and that you have covered the spectrum in a variety of different ways that you have seen this coming. Uh, for instance, your Virtual Reality Technologies Act, the Deep Fake Act, and the the act that is very well known and, and one of its kind really uh, in this country, the Algorithmic Accountability Act uh, that you co-authored with Senators Wyden and Booker. Thank you for all you do. I don't want to go on because I know your time is brief. I want to make sure that we use your time as best as possible. And, and we're so grateful you could join us today. Well, first of all, let me thank you, Miriam. I Happened to jump on uh, uh, a bit delayed, but I'm glad I was able to uh, be with you this afternoon. And just hearing uh, a, a little bit of what Roger had to say, I know I'm in the right place at the right time. Uh, greetings, everyone. I'm Congresswoman Yvette D. Clark, and I proudly represent New York's 9th Congressional District, which is Central and South Brooklyn. And I'm so glad to be here with you to discuss the glaring question. Why is algorithmic accountability the right step? As our country grapples with two simultaneous pandemics, the health pandemic, that is COVID-19, and the societal pandemic of police brutality, algorithmic accountability may not seem like it's a priority. That is mistaken because AI bias is inherently linked with these two crises. Increasingly, algorithms, instead of people, help determine whether Americans are hired for a dream job, approved for a home mortgage, or sent to prison. However, algorithms can be dangerously biased and result in discriminatory decisions. 
while AI systems come to conclusions based on calculations, that outputs can reflect the programmer's biases and or the data sets used to train the systems. That's why I introduced the Algorithmic Accountability Act, the first ever bill to address the challenge directly. Under my bill, the FTC will require companies with data on over 1 million users or revenue greater than $50 million to conduct bias and security assessments of highly sensitive automated decision systems and then fix any issues they identify. That's going to be challenging because, of course, uh, these are the companies that uh, allow these biases to be baked in to begin with. But putting them on notice makes things much easier in terms of transparency and accountability. Right now, we have an incentive structure that rewards willful blindness. If companies don't audit their algorithms for bias, they can act surprised, as I've stated, when a researcher discovers their software is perpetrating discrimination, uh, perpetuating. But under my bill, the incentives are flipped. If you aren't undertaking due diligence to make sure your systems are fair, you're not just at risk of receiving a bad headline. You are liable under the law. Last year, I led a letter with Senator Wyden advocating that the next coronavirus relief package require federal stimulus funding recipients to audit their automated decision-making systems for bias. This is critical because AI bias is alarming in the context of our healthcare system. AI will play a key role in monitoring the spread of COVID-19 among individuals, predicting future outbreaks, and perhaps even allocating scarce healthcare resources. Already, algorithms are being used to identify high-risk patients, and if the pandemic intensifies, and hospitals experience shortages of ventilators or other supplies, these algorithms could be used to prioritize care. This sounds great in theory, but in practice, there are existing examples of biased AI resulting in patients of color, Black patients in particular, receiving less care than their white patient counterparts. Life and death decisions should not be informed by algorithms unless we have confidence that they are not putting people of color at risk. And confronting AI bias is also critical in the context of our economic response to the coronavirus. For example, with companies receiving so many job applications right now, many turn to automated systems to sort through resumes. It may sound fair to program this algorithm to look for resumes, resumes that share similarities with people who have previously hired them. But in reality, because those previous hiring decisions may themselves have been biased, favoring privileged applicants over poorer applicants and stacked against women who may have taken time away from the workforce, the new algorithm is going to perpetuate those biases. With our country facing the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression and small businesses desperately seeking capital, 
preventing automated discrimination in employment and lending is absolutely essential. I'd also like to say a few words about how AI bias is increasingly perpetuating discrimination in criminal justice system. Right now, people across America are standing up and speaking out about the systemic racism and police brutality that has led to the death of countless African-Americans and the beating abuse and incarceration of so many more. George Floyd was murdered while a camera was rolling. But we know so many other people have suffered the same injustice when a camera wasn't there. So what would you say if I told you that historical data from this criminal justice system, the same system that that jails, stops, searches, convicts African-Americans at a much higher rate than any other group, is now being used to create create algorithms to decide who can post bail, how much that bail costs, and recommend the length of prison sentences to judges. Well, it's happening in states around the country. Using raw data from a broken criminal justice system to assign risk scores is certain to lead to unjust outcomes. Machine learning algorithms use statistics to find patterns in data. If you feel the system is historical crime data, excuse me, if you feed the system historical crime data, it will pick out the practices associated with convictions. Maybe it'll say the defendants from a particular neighborhood are more likely to return to prison. But what the raw data doesn't show is that the reason why more people return to prison from that neighborhood is not that more crimes are occurring, but instead because it's over-policed and even minor infractions in that neighborhood are likely to be caught and result in parole violations. Maybe it's because people from that neighborhood are more likely to be convicted by biased juries. There are endless other examples of how biased AI impacts real people's lives, and harms people of color and women in particular. The bad news is that unless we act soon, many of these biases will become even more deeply entrenched in our society. AI's rapid deployment, given the rapid uh, adoption of, of the virtual world. However, the good news is that this problem has a solution. With better data sets, continuous auditing, both before an algorithm is released and after it's operational, and increased diversity throughout the technology ecosystem, we can successfully mitigate algorithmic bias. So I want to thank you for this opportunity and look forward to a more equitable future and algorithmic accountability. Let me thank you so much for. Uh, having this very thought-provoking, forward-leaning forum today. And I want everyone to stay safe, stay strong, and remember to wear your mask. Have a great afternoon.
Thank you so much, Congresswoman Clark. We are so grateful for all the work you do. Thank you for reminding us of why you are doing the, why you put forward the Algorithmic Accountability Act, why you have these concerns and some of the ways that our society will be impacted if you don't have uh, the tools that you're putting in place. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome to stay on. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, and uh, we're so excited to also dig back into what Roger was saying about. Okay. Can I just, can I say one thing about Congresswoman Clark's point? Because I'm a huge supporter of hers. But one of the things, and this is the classic issue in our politics, because this is something she didn't create, but she has to somehow navigate through, which is we have this idea in our heads that if a company is below a certain threshold, it's okay for them to harm people, right? And, you know, I'm sitting there going, no, we have to change the culture. We actually have to have requirements that say you must anticipate and mitigate harm before shipment. You know, it has to be like a duty of care at a minimum or something more intense than that. We have to change the culture because Silicon Valley right now doesn't even think about harm until they reach a really large scale. And even then they're so built around scale, they're so built around getting rid of friction that they don't do it. And you know, the Congressman I think knows from experience that when you're trying to get a bill through Congress, the really giant problem is there are so many voices who can stop you that you have to find a way of navigating through that. So you start with the really big obvious guys because there are fewer of them, right? Um, but the notion that the problem is any less if a small guy does it is clearly, I mean, I, Congressman, I'm pretty sure you would agree with me on that, that, you know, it's, it's. Absolutely, Roger. I mean, it, it, it can permeate throughout the ecosystem. There's no doubt about it from the smallest of subcontractors straight through to the big guys. And you're absolutely right. It's being able to sort of wrap our arms around this. And I think it's important for some of the bigger guys to actually uh, lead the way. And I think when you make an example out of one of the big guys, it kind of wakes everyone up. It gives them a jolt. Um, but they can also be leaders in helping the smaller guys, quite frankly, to adhere to a, a, a standard that, uh, that eliminates the the vibe, the bias and the friction that you've talked about because they have far greater capacity. And, you know, it's it, it once they overcome the path of least resistance, they're able to set that example for the smaller guys. It's the cost of doing business. We know that. And they're going to keep doing things that way until they're caught or until, you know, uh, they're they're made an example of. So it's it's challenging, as we've stated, you know, in Washington, uh, unfortunately, you know, it's it, it, uh, such a, a, a huge uh, task that, uh, you know, for us to get that deep into the weeds could take years, particularly. It, it, uh, it, it's uh -huh. super hard because if you look at an AI product like Clearview AI, which scrapes right. billions of photographs off social media to create a facial recognition system, they would slide underneath Congressman Clark's thing because they don't, they have very few customers. They basically sell it to police departments and they don't have much revenue because right now they're basically giving it away. And yet there are a billion photographs in there. Presumably a hundred million people have had their civil rights violated. And those are just the people whose photographs are taken. Then you get the people who are falsely identified because of the failures of the AI. 
And I look at this and I go, I mean, I have so much respect for the members of the House of Representatives, because in addition to Congressman Clark, we have people like Jan Schakowsky and Anna Eshoo and Tom Malinowski, who are really focused on these exact problems, which is the incentive structure, creating safety from tech products, but also looking at the business model of surveillance capitalism. And if you haven't read the extraordinary book by... uh, by Shoshana Zuboff. I really recommend it because it, the, the thing to understand is that it's this notion that you're going to unilaterally claim ownership of the most private data in people's lives. And this notion that you're going to extract that data from the real world, convert it into predictions of people's behavior and sell those. But worse than that, use it to train recommendation engines that manipulate their behavior. I mean, those people who were at the Capitol on January 6th were convinced that the election was wrongfully decided, notwithstanding mountains of evidence to the contrary. Now, that is not their fault. That is the fault of a very profitable system that makes money from the manipulation of people's ideas and their behavior. And that that just shouldn't be legal. We've banned a lot of economic systems historically. We've banned child labor. We've banned Ponzi schemes. I think we have to ban surveillance capitalism. We have to have an actual conversation about that. Now, you may disagree. People may say, look, we can't do that. It's too impactful. I go, I'm willing to have that debate. But we have to have the full debate because, I mean, there are people dying of COVID who are convinced that COVID is a hoax. And that's, that's just, in my opinion, that's wrong. That's just unfair. And there are a lot of people dying of COVID because in their job, they cannot help but get into contact with people who believe COVID's a hoax and who give it to them and kill them. And those are disproportionately lower income people. Those are people of color. Those are women and men who are in healthcare professions. I mean, it's really, it's just not fair. And I think we're a better country than that. And I would like to believe that AI could be applied to making the world a better place. And honest to God, the tech industry of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s would have done that. There's no reason why the tech industry of the 2020s can't do that. I mean, it really, it's not that hard. But it does start with the incentives. If you say to people, you should only care about shareholders, what you're saying is, that's like saying, I'm just following orders. You can excuse all manner of bad behavior if the only people who count are shareholders. And that's a, that's a societal-wide problem. That's not just tech. That's everywhere. And that, that kind of behavior has got to stop. And it's weird. You know, you're looking at somebody who spent a whole life as a capitalist. And I like capitalism. But what we have now is monopoly. It's different. It's more. It's, it's authoritarian. It's not, it's not healthy for normal people. And I'm sitting there going, look, if I can lend my voice to that, and again, I don't ask you to believe me. I'm asking you to consider what I'm saying and imagine what you would do differently if what I was saying was true. Just think of it as a thought experiment because we need to do this quickly. We can't wait around. I mean, we got to pass HR 1. We got to pass HR 4, right? Because we have to restore that piece of democracy. But we have to do something about the information space of our democracy, because right now it is controlled by essentially, you know, fewer people than I have fingers on my left hand. And they are all basically white men, rich white men. 
Mm. I don't Roger, think that reflects our country. Sorry, Roger, you, you're you're singing my tune over there, and I, <laughs> you know, this, this is, uh, you know, one of the uh, frontiers we must address. Uh, it's from you know ownership of data to, yeah. as we've stated, the you know the, the AI and and how it's it, data sets are being used and weaponized, and uh, you know we're seeing sort of the adverse impact of that now, and it makes sense uh, before things get hardened uh, and and or uh, you know exponential growth is done in that space uh, for us. Uh, to to shut it down now, and as you stated, incentivize uh, uh, behavioral change. And I also believe um, we've got to educate the public far more about what is happening in the virtual world, because you know people voluntarily set themselves up um, to they be do. exploited. But Congressman, I, if you give me a chance, I'm going to try to persuade you that it's actually not about who owns the data. That in fact, the data is like a body part. You know, it, 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 my partner, Tristan Harris, describes it as a data voodoo doll when they collect all your digital footprints and they assemble this virtual you out of data and they use that both to predict your behavior and to manipulate it. Why isn't that like a kidney? Why is that something that can be bought and sold? I mean, right. Obviously, you can give somebody data in exchange for a service, but the notion that they can then commercialize that data for other purposes, that strikes me as something that's very un-American. And we've never had the conversation in that context because, right. you know, let's face it, you can do other forms of advertising, contextual advertising, where you tie it to the content instead of the person. That's been very effective in a lot of contexts. And, you know, I just, I look at all this and again, nothing about this is inevitable. And the thing about the congresswoman is she is part of this extraordinary group in the House that have been, you know, people think back to that first hearing in the Senate in 2018 and go, oh, these guys will never figure it out. They didn't pay attention to the House hearing the next day because the House has always been way in front on this. And I think the speaker has played a huge role in this by encouraging people to focus on this stuff and recognizing the linkage between the pandemic between the attacks on democracy, between, if you will, the, the sort of inability of the country to have a shared set of facts, and this business model, that these things are intimately linked. And until you do something about the business model, we can't do this with a classic congressional, you know, ad hoc patchwork thing where we address symptoms. We want to go and fix the core problem the same way we did, you know, the same way we ultimately did in the chemicals industry, the same way we ultimately did in the food industry and the drug industry, where you sit there and you say, I'm sorry, this industry is so important. And we got to do it right now while AI is young. And it's not about competing with China. China is authoritarian. They got a bigger population. If we compete with them on their terms, we're going to lose. We need to go about what's great about our country, which is diversity entrepreneurship. We need to think about AI that isn't about manipulating whole populations, but is in fact about understanding very specific problems and millions of different ones. And that is completely within our reach. We just haven't had the imagination to go for it. Roger, I'm so glad that you brought us back to the point of, of what Congress is doing, how far they've come. Clearly, uh, Representative Clark's bill addresses such an important piece that 
that cur our current system rewards the willful blindness. I love, Representative Clark, how you framed it as understanding the current dynamic and understanding how your bill flips that dynamic. And, uh, there is, and Miriam, there is a companion bill from yeah. NSU and Tom Malinowski that goes after algorithmic amplification. So it's about, if you sit there and think about it, if you're, you're looking at the business model, all of these things come together. And if we can pass pieces that go after safety by creating accountability, that go after the business model by looking at self-determination and creating rules around privacy, and then go after competition with antitrust, that package collectively, which the House is making, I mean, they're making really good progress in all three areas. There's real hope. And that's why I stay at it because, you know, I got to be honest with you, there's some days I wake up and read the, the news and go, oh my God. I mean, like, you know, the insurrection happened in plain sight. I mean, the FBI's excuse, oh, well, we're not allowed to look at social media. It's like, excuse me, dude, your own people were in the groups that were going there. Well, I mean, this whole thing that we don't have enough surveillance is nonsense. This thing happened in plain sight. And Roger, it seemed that in reading your book, Zucked, you almost foresaw it happening. It almost looked like you okay, were writing it with January 6th in mind. Miriam, oh, somebody, I'd forgotten this, but somebody posted the page. There's a page in Zucked, mm -hmm. which I wrote in the summer of 2018, which I said, you know, if you allow what's going on on Facebook to persist long enough, you eventually get to armed insurrection because people are stuck in these bubbles and the people with guns get so disconnected from reality that you get an armed insurrection. And I'd forgotten I'd written that. And, and the problem was, we were talking about this all through December, that th these guys are doing this in plain sight. Let's get ready. And the whole notion that somehow we need fences around the Capitol, that's not the issue, right? The issue on this whole thing is that I mean, remember, it's not just this is happening on Facebook and YouTube. It's that they're profiting from it. They get paid because Trump was doing this grift, raised 200 million bucks around Stop the Steal. Facebook and, uh, and Google have people who do advertising against the videos and against uh, the, the content. I mean, these guys, I mean, we have to look at the fact that there's all this potentially illegal activity going on in these platforms. And, and the thing is, it's all driven by AI, all of it. I mean, or at least what they call AI. I mean, it's really machine learning, but, but AI is getting a bad name. Something that should be the next big thing is getting a bad name because we're allowing these people to use it in ways that are destroying the foundations of America. And they shouldn't be allowed to do that just for money. I mean, that's nuts. Well, and you've said that as we, it's currently set up, where law is the tool of the powerful. I'm, I'm very curious. I hope we can also talk about how you think AI can be the solution. But before we go there, I'd love to further, you just mentioned a bunch of ways that you think laws, obviously the Algorithmic Accountability Act is an important piece of the puzzle to change incentives to reward the good behavior of checking, uh, doing audits, uh, as opposed to currently where it's disincentivized, you're almost penalized if you were to do that. But obviously I, that's part of a solution. If you were to say what the most important piece in addition, companion, would it be antitrust? Would it be 230? What's the other piece that you want? We're at Georgetown Law. You've got activated lawyers here who wanna be listening and, and responding. What should we be focusing our energy on next? I think there's three classes of things, and there's more than one way to do each one. So start with safety. 
So safety is about this notion that right now, the tech industry has something it calls a minimum viable product. It ships the product whenever they can make it work. And all they care about is scale and speed. So if you think about it, the problem in tech is the culture is based on valuing efficiency more than anything else. And think about democracy and self-determination, which are the foundations of our country. They are inefficient by design, right? I mean, efficiency is the tool of authoritarians, right? If, if, if in Google's mind, we should all be wearing the same clothes. That would be so much more efficient. And I'm going, that doesn't make them bad, but we really need to have a conversation about the conflicting value systems because in their value system, their goal of efficiency is actually dangerous for an awful lot of people, people of color, for women, for any group that is, has less power. Okay. And I think the way you do that is by mandating actual liability at the corporate level at the executive level. And I think there needs to be something for engineers where they're signing an oath to do no harm, something like the Hippocratic Oath, where they at a minimum get demerits and maybe get banned if they get enough demerits, get banned from the industry. Because you have to create an incentive where they anticipate and mitigate harm before shipping problem. The second thing is you have to look at the business model. This is where algorithmic accountability comes in. And in my mind, the underlying problem is this notion of data as an asset. And I happen to agree with Shoshana Zuboff that we should treat data as a human right and ban it entirely. Now, that may be a heavy lift politically. So what are the alternatives? You can have something like, you know, either opt-in or opt-out privacy, something that gives people control. But I sit there and go, you know, I'm sorry. There's some things we can't allow. We can't allow any kind of health data to be commercialized. I mean, your prescription data and your medical test data are both freely tradable and available in a marketplace. And that's a violation of your civil rights. I don't think that your web history should be something people can commercialize. I don't think your location. These things are intimate. And I think there are whole classes of things you just say, I'm sorry, you can't do that at all. And then we can have a decision about whether it's opt-in or opt-out for everything else. But things like algorithmic accountability are really important because if you're going to allow algorithms, you have to both have accountability, right? And you have to have an enforcement mechanism. And so the, 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 the Eshoo Malinowski bill is really about saying, okay, if we're going to have a, this thing that, that Congressman Clark's doing, we want to complement it with a thing that says, hey, you lose the protection of Section 230 if you use algorithms to amplify content in your site. And then we have antitrust to restore competition. So I look at antitrust as it doesn't fix anything, but it buys us time. And it's the place where we're furthest along. And what I really want is I want the Biden administration to federalize the Texas case, because that, for those of you who are most of your attorneys, that's a Section 1 Sherman Act violation. The alleged uh, offense is price fixing between Google and Facebook. Now, Section 1 offers you a felony path with a three-year uh, prison sentence for each count. There are two counts, one for the actual price fixing and a second one because apparently there's email of Sheryl Sandberg to her counterpart at Google saying, if we get caught, let's share the cost of the defense. Uh, if the allegation proves to be true, you've got two counts. Why does it matter? I don't want to see them go to jail, but I do believe that if you threaten them with that, you get all kinds of political power. 
And with that political power, we can start to negotiate substantive changes on the business model and substantive changes on liability. And, you know, this is hardball. These guys have destroyed our public health. They've destroyed our democracy. I mean, not alone. They had a lot of help, but they played an unbelievable role in it. And I just think this is an opportunity for the legal profession, which has had a tough couple of years, if you, you know. I mean, I keep hearing these guys on TV tell me there's nothing we do to prosecute the crimes of the Trump administration. I'm going, you got to be kidding. Um, I mean, that's the big opportunity is we can rebuild a new America with a much better vision right now. And we start with this piece right here, because if you fix this industry, it will ripple out into the entire economy. I think that's a, that's a that's a good place to jump in, and I think um, you know, fighting words from Roger McNamee as usual, and thank you for 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 you know these um the, these these you know calls to action really. And these Clark and I are going to go out there. We're going to be at the front of this line, okay? And I need her to understand that I'm not messing around here, okay? So I think I think you've answered part of the question that I was going to ask both of you. There's one thing that you both said that I heard, which was something to the tune of "unless we act soon." Uh, uh, that phrase uh, you use it in different contexts, but um, the the you know uh, sense of urgency is 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 shared. You know, Roger, you've just walked us through some things that we should do, um, and Representative Clark. Uh, similarly, you are actively pushing that through your bill in Congress. Um, I want to ask both of you, because I know, Representative Clark, you're passionate about this, and Roger, you are a seasoned uh, veteran of the tech industry. You know, we have students um, in, the, in the event and uh, others listening around the world with different backgrounds and skill sets, different aspirations. What advice would you give them to young professionals hoping to enter this space, whether the technology sector or the legal or policy apparatuses around it? Uh, and, and, you know, how can we expand that pipeline so that we get more people coming in with good ideas and energy to, to get us to uh, a good place in the future? Well, I would start with uh, saying that we need to lift up the practice of actually analyzing and holding accountable uh, you know, the companies that are amassing data in, in our nation. And, and we need activists, uh, whether they're uh, legal activists, uh, and, and again, establishing a discipline that is trained to, to really examine this. And, 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 you know, because this is an, an urgent, this is an, an uh, excuse me, an industry that is ever evolving. And, the, the, you know, where it is in its foundation, it speaks to where it can be as it evolves. Because, again, I think we've stated that getting away with uh, the, the, the type of bias practices that have been baked into the machine learning will only self-perpetuate itself particularly because these companies have been very resistant to diversifying their workforce. And when you, when you have a, a lack of uh, that level of diversity and inclusion within the organization itself and at the decision-making table, the, the, the errors are going to be repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. And, and so for students, I'd say, you know, Look at the, the, the discipline of uh, uh, legalities within this space, 
and how we create a new discipline that tracks what is happening in the virtual world and how there are infractions that we would never accept in, for lack of a better term, the physical world. I'm talking about civil rights violations that are baked into a lot of what is taking place as a result of machine learning, as well as dive in, become a part of these companies, bust them up from the inside out by bringing your expertise to bear, by challenging the status quo. Those are just two ways. Um, and I'm sure there are a multitude of other ways. I mean, we're going to do what we can to bring a level of transparency and education to the public around exactly what is taking place. But we need practitioners now at this stage. And, 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 and there aren't enough folk who are, are, are picking this up as a discipline. So let me give you some role models. So for those of you who are going to be attorneys, Hillary Brill, who's on this uh, call here, is a role model. Danielle Citron in privacy. Marianne Franks, relative to First Amendment, relative to Section 230, and also privacy. These are huge role models. Jonathan Cantor in antitrust. Uh, you know, Lena Khan and Tim Wu in antitrust. These are all attorneys who've made their career by being on the right side of these issues. And there are still huge holes. Um, you know, I would call attention to Woody Hartsog and Neil Richards, who focused on a thing called duty of loyalty, which is a profound attack on, uh, on, on uh, surveillance capitalism. On the whole, I think the whole field of what you do on, on liability, you know, there's been a lot of focus on Section 230, but I think that's the, a, a, a false flag because the problem is deeper than that. And 230 is about internet platforms, but Google and, and Amazon and Facebook are migrating into the real world. So they're things that are not based on advertising. And so the harms are, you know, if you look at, they're going into medical, they're going into education, they're going to the defense department, other branches of government. I mean, law enforcement, it is really, really dangerous. And none of those things are going to be touched by 230. So we really need to look at liability more broadly. And so if you want a kind of open field, I think that's a gigantic thing for attorneys. If you want to get involved in tech itself, I think you want to just ask yourself the question of what does the world look like if everything is run off my phone? First opportunity, somebody needs to make an email equivalent of Signal, Right. Not it's 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 not cloud based. It's not scannable. It's it's completely private. I mean, I want I want to rearchitect the entire internet so that no data leaves my phone except when I choose to do so. Right now, Consumers Union, the people who do consumer reports, they are actively looking at a way of doing authentication in the middle of the system. You know, in a kind of neutral, open source way, so that your identity there's a buffer between you and the internet. I mean, that kind of stuff's really important. And what I would tell you is, two years ago, I'd have told you, I didn't see a lot of career opportunities outside of DuckDuckGo and Jumbo and a few others. But now, I think we've hit a point. And I think that the insurrection had a lot to do with this. I think we've hit the point now where change is coming. And we can do this. We can do this re-architecting. And in AI, it starts with this really simple problem of, let's reconceptualize AI around not who can get the most data and then just figure out what to do with it. But sitting there and asking the question, what's the American way of doing it? How do you do it so diversity is an asset, so small businesses are an asset, so that that 
civil liberties and self-determination are an asset, not a liability. Because the problem with AI is it breeds conformity as currently structured. And that's nuts. It, it's all targeted efficiency. That is nuts. Efficiency should not be the value system we optimize our country for. I mean, we're not the Borg here, right? We're not China. We shouldn't try to compete on their playing field. We should do our own thing. And I don't know whether this thought experiment is going to stick with you or not. But seriously, if you could just take a moment and imagine what you would do differently if you thought what I was saying was true. Just ask yourself. It's a really useful process. And, you know, I know the congressman and I are going to become great friends because, you know, this thing, nobody's got the answer here. Okay. I surely don't. I have the questions. And I talk to a lot of really smart people and I connect them to each other. And that's a good function too. But Georgetown, you actually do stuff at Georgetown. And you have a locational advantage. I mean, we, I mean, in antitrust, we need to reverse 40 years of nonsense created by Robert Bork. That's going to require a long series of cases specifically designed to undo all that BS. But we got to do the same thing relative to the whole way the economy is structured. There's a great role for the law in that. And it's a way for the law to get healthy and well again. And I wish you lots of luck. We need you to get this right. Well, maybe maybe we can we can we can we can just dive one more layer into that because I think getting it right is something that obviously uh, presumably everyone who's shown up to this event uh, wants to do. And uh, I think you've, you've sketched out very well all of the ways in which we are getting it wrong and what some of the potential pathways to remedying that are. What I want to hear you uh, as a technologist, Roger, and as a, as a, as a public um, figure and servant, uh, Representative Clark, here is, you know, so supposing we do get that right. So, you know, we can shift our focus as we hopefully can and expand it from this realm of mitigating harms and managing these risks that are so manifest. Um, what are, what are the good use cases? You know, what are the, what are the positive use cases? What can we be doing with AI once we solve those problems that should give us the motivation to put our shoulder to the wheel, to, to, to build these systems, to have accountable, unbiased, beneficial AI? Well, so to me, you sit there and say, what is wrong with the world today? Well, like, there are a whole bunch of really basic things, right? AI is being applied, among other things, to essentially create businesses that insert themselves between the population and the people who do real stuff. So think about DoorDash okay. or Uber Eats, right? Their entire business is based on this premise that they're going to use their artificial intelligence to disintermediate people who do something real and take 30% of the revenues away from those people for doing something those people are already doing, right? <laughs> the whole thing is insane, right? And we've passed a thing in California, Proposition 22, that basically treats those people as uh, sharecroppers for the rest of their lives. I mean, it's insane. And I say, there's got to be a way to use AI to undo things like that. But just as importantly, let's look at things like education. What are the ways you can use technology to, to make education good? Because everything we've done there so far has been about gathering data on little children using Chromebooks, Google Classroom, and Minecraft, right? And I'm going, whoa, there's got to be something you can do to make kids better prepared for the real world than that, right? 
There's got to be some way to use AI so that you can actually um, create, you know, a space for reality that can, you know, is protected from all the nonsense that's flying around. Presumably in healthcare, we can do something similar, right? But again, if the stuff, if you're starting everything with biased data sets, that's not going to work. So the first thing you got to do is clean your house and, and actually, instead of being in a rush to commercialize, let us be in a rush to fix the engineering flaws that are there. Because once we've done that, then I think whenever you, whatever you apply it to, you're going to get a way better outcome. But as long as you're applying biased data sets, it's never going to work. And as long as it's acceptable for a customer, like a police department, to, to say, I'm going to buy predictive policing through AI, because that allows me to beat up on black and brown people and blame it on a computer, which nobody can scrutinize. I mean, no amount of algorithmic accountability can make up for the fact that police departments want to beat up on black and brown people. I mean, that's a societal problem we're going to have to fix some other way. And But right now, AI is making that worse, not better. And so I'd like to think that if we just, if, if job one is eliminating bias, and I mean, for real, not just getting stats that say you're at 97%. It's like, no, people believe it in their heart of hearts that this is something you're going to drive to zero. And you're always going to, I mean, these guys who come out there say, hey, I can use AI to predict from a picture whether this person is likely to become a criminal. I mean, that kind of stuff is nonsense. And we have to. You know, we have to train the press and others not to give any energy to that. It's awful. Anyway, I'm sorry for talking so long. So I would also add, um, you know, w w infrastructure is, is going to be the next frontier, right? We, we, we are already discussing it here with the rapid deployment of broadband, 5G. All right. Now we're talking um, how do we... Uh, divest ourselves of fossil fuels? How do we go into renewables? How do we start a, a how do we uh, ex expand into smart grids and, and expand into uh, smart communities and energy microgrids? All of these, uh, how do we uh, create energy efficiency through uh, technology, right? All of that it, it has implications when you look at geographically how our society had marginalized people, right? So there are opportunities there to, 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 to create a whole new landscape, a whole new paradigm for how we interface with one another as Americans across racial, ethnic, sexual orientation, whatever the isms are. And that can be done proactively and healthily through AI. It can also be the monster, right? Because we know that AI is already responsible for redlining that's taking place right now. We know that, you know, there are certain communities that are harder hit by climate change than others. And so whoever cracks the code in that space is now moving us into the 21st century, really excellent use of the technology. And you're also setting up a platform that uh, creates equity, 
creates equity amongst uh, communities across this nation. And, and so I think the possibilities, quite frankly, are endless. Uh, I, I'm a sci-fi fanatic. I don't know what I don't know, but I know that my brain will take me places that uh, I know we can we can uh, 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 we can achieve uh, when we believe it. I know that sounds corny, but technology enables that and it doesn't limit us to the United States of America. That's the other side of it. We can be leaders. And when we get our democratic values right, we can be leaders in helping others to democratize their societies, to, 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 to get their acts together. But we have to make some decisions ourselves. And uh, once we've made those decisions, I think part of our ability to not only export, but exchange and engage um, will be facilitated by uh, the infrastructure that we've established and that we have created. I, have so, I so strongly endorse that. And I would like to just add two thoughts because this is, again, career opportunities for people. So number one, 5G or broadband. Mm -hmm. Right now, the primary economic driver for 5G is data collection. Right. So if you sit there, whether it's 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 Alexa or uh, ring doorbells, right, all of this is about, you know, scaring people and collecting data. We clearly have to do something about that. And but there's more to it when we're doing infrastructure. One of the kinds of infrastructure we need to rebuild in this country is actually our ability to make our own technology. So we need to have five nanometer fabs in the U.S. so that we can make the semiconductors that go into 5G. And, and we can make them consistent with our own value system. And we need to make sure that when we're giving licenses out to people, the licenses are not a license to steal people's humanity by taking all their data and then commercializing it. And but, you know, again, this is this is a campaign we can all be involved in, because the thing here is it's not like other in this case is a few people. It's essentially all but the people running a handful of Silicon Valley companies. So it's like 90 some odd percent of the U.S. population is on the wrong end of the stick, whether they realize it or not. Now, some people are getting it much worse than others, but don't kid yourself. They're coming for you. In, a, in today's monopolized market, there are no career opportunities except to be a droid, right? To get a ton of student loans and then go to work for a corporation where your health care is tied to your job. That basically is the equivalent of indentured servitude. And that is our current model. I mean, that's insane, right? I mean, there is, that is no way to run a democracy where a kid comes out of graduate school with $100,000, 50 or $100,000 worth of debt, and has to go to work at a place that can't switch jobs because they can't lose their health care. I mean, that's just, that is not a way to run a democracy. I think we'd all agree. And I, I really like that we're talking, we're trending towards an optimistic outcome here where we're talking about all these harms. But Roger, you're inspiring us to rebuild America better with this understanding and with these technologies. And Congresswoman Clark, I love that you point out that this is a great business case. This is not just the yeah. right thing to do, but whoever builds responsible AI wins, not only because they avoid the liability that's coming, which will be painful and costly, not only because they will not be harming people, which no one wants to do, but also you have more users, you have more consumers, the more people who can access your AI, your technologies, the, the more you have to win, the more power you have, the more uh, impact you have. 
Well, Miriam, I think that the thing everybody forgets is that there are much better business models in advertising. There are much better use cases than what we do on the internet today. Things that are wildly more valuable. I mean, Congressman Clark made this really important point that is lost in this whole discussion, which is infrastructure is great for the economy. And it's great not just economically, it's great socially, right? And the Green New Deal matters because the transition of our funding away from fossil fuels to the Green New Deal doesn't just improve the economy. It actually employs a ton of people in really good jobs that are going to last for a long time. And it'll take communities that currently have no future and give them a future. And you know, you sit there and you go, it, that applies everywhere. And AI can be a core to that whole thing. The tech industry can be core. I mean, you sit there and I mean, why are we buying aircraft carriers? I mean, it, it, the whole thing is right now, the way we spend money is insane, right? This mythology of America, the great empire. I mean, it may have been at one time, but gosh, I don't think that's where we are today. We can't even agree on facts, right? I mean, what do we have to defend? What we should be focused on is the infrastructure top to bottom. And here's a great example. Think about solar winds. Solar winds was a classic application of consumer of commercial technology optimized for efficiency to a government problem where your prime directive was security. And it turns out that efficiency and security are not in fact compatible. And so the hack of solar winds doesn't just expose a flaw. It, it's exposed that the entire architecture of the government's IT, you can't fix it now. There's no patch. So we're going to have to rebuild it. Well, guess what? We can use that as the catalyst for this highly distributed thing I'm talking about. We can employ a ton of people. We can actually create AI that does something useful because the government's a really big customer for this. And we can employ a ton of people doing really good stuff. And it's like, it's not complicated. It's just a huge threat to the one-tenth of one percent that currently have all the political voice in America today. But I'm well, sorry. It's done. And that's why I would say, Roger, that. Uh, we are great, great. We are a great nation. We're, we're greatness in waiting right now because everything that you have talked about already exists in theory. The practical application of it has not manifested itself because there are, there's a tug of war between the 20th and the 21st century. And there's some folks, uh, like I share, I don't name names. But there are a lot of folks still wearing, using flip phones, right? So we, we, we've got to take that leap of faith. And, and I believe that we have all the talent and expertise, but we have yielded it to a very small sector of our population. They've been given access to, you know, all of the private equity funds and all of the hedge funds and the folks who will invest in their technologies and you know their closed system. But when we open up those opportunities, they're going to be competed against. And whoever cracks the code, and I keep saying this around diversity and inclusion is going to win. They're going to win. Well, I love that. I, I want this conversation to keep on going. I think there's so much that we can all benefit from it, but I have to be respectful of your time and your schedules. And so hopefully we can 
pick this up another day. Uh, I think for those who want to hear more from Congresswoman Clark, I'm so pleased to say we have a podcast episode with her coming out next week where she reveals so many of her insights into why this is a pivotal moment for AI, how we all have a role to play. Uh, the history majors like Roger and me, uh, the English majors, which I think might be Mark and, and, and uh, Hillary and so many others that we all have a role to play. So thank you, um, Congresswoman Clark, for your role in the Congress and for speaking with, with NAI We Trust about the ways that we all need to step up here. You have just listened to NAI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.